This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we ride e-bikes in London with British manufacturer Vault. We also visit the Italian lighting maker Lotus, meet the creative director of Sunspell to discuss how ceramics inspired a new collection and look at interstellar travel with space perspective. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. The team at Monocle On Design are big fans of taking to two wheels on city streets. Our producer, Mei Lee, is partial to a Brompton, whereas I prefer a trusty steel-framed racer. We're both, however, tempted to trade these in for the work of Vault. A British e-bike manufacturer, Vault designs and hand-builds all its cycles in the UK. Founded in 2010 by brothers James and Lyle Metcalf, the company offers an e-bike range that includes folding, hybrid, urban and mountain bikes. To find out more, May Lee pedalled over to Vault's London showroom and sent us this report. When we started out, there was nothing that actually looked attractive on the e-bike market. People started launching e-bikes but with huge um, uh, lead-acid batteries on them. They weren't reliable, the technology wasn't there, the motors weren't really good enough um, and the bike would take you for you know a handful of miles before you, you ran out and you had a very heavy bike. You sort of had something which looked pretty monstrous and, um, and something that you really would stand out on if you were sort of riding it. So, and it wasn't a positive standout either. It was a, it was a, you'd stand out on it for the wrong reasons. We wanted to sort of come up with something that actually people wanted um, visually. They wanted something that was sort of stylish and, and attractive, but also highly functional. My name's James Metcalf. I'm co-founder of Vault Bikes. Vault arrived onto the scene at a moment in time where lithium-ion batteries were being heavily invested into by the laptop and mobile market. This transition from lead batteries to lithium-ion allowed the use of smaller batteries that, in turn, allowed e-bikes to travel further than ever before. So we just worked initially on style um, being, can we make something that looks nice, um, with functionality as well. And then we soon realised that the market wanted a battery would take you a long way. So we then worked on developing sort of smaller and smaller battery, um, working with sort of battery manufacturers to try and sort of come up with something that was, um, uh, you know, attractive to people. We've now started integrating the batteries inside the frame as well now. And when you look at the bike, it's sort of hard to really identify it as being an electric bike from a visual perspective. You've got bikes now which are sort of blending in with what would be a historic bike bicycle, but also looking cooler than them as well. You know, you've got something that looks really, really smart. Though Volt was one of the early adopters of the electric bike back in 2010, at that time there was a lot of resistance to these new forms of transport when they entered the market. The cycling industry, which has always been quite slow to change, um, there was a lot of resistance from that. They were quite scared of the product. I think they were just thinking, oh, this is going to compete against what we do now, rather than complement what we do. And and I don't think they really realised at the time that it not only will be attractive to their current customers, but it will also bring a lot of new customers in who don't really conventionally cycle for whatever reason. 
in the earlier days when we first launched, it was late 50s and up was the early adopters, really. Um, but now it's um, become sort of very popular from, you know, all age groups, really. And I think part of the transformation of that has probably come from delivery riders. People have now got very used to seeing e-bikes and then they see a lot of these rental bikes as well and they like maybe try them when they're on holiday or they see their mate doing it on an app and and going around and that's really got people connected to them and people think, right, well, maybe I'll get my own one now. Volt have a number of different models on offer now, targeting both consumer and corporate fleets. So, for example, we've got um, a bike just sat there, which is um, going to one of the um, delivery companies in the UK, which um, as such has to be sort of like easy to get onto, um, very robust, huge battery taking long distances and sort of like puncture proof tyres, all that kind of thing it goes with and racks built in and everything. And then you've got something which is um, uh, more streamlined in design and sort of like fits to a different audience but actually it's very good for couriers actually because it's got the carry racks and stuff within it but um, it's a single speed fixie which we've just launched uh, that's the one we got the Red Dot Award for which is quite nice called the, the London uh, Toby over there was actually um, uh, chief um, designer within that Toby Broughton it's going to be a very famous designer stroke artist one day All the bikes come with an immobiliser, so um, for sort of an added security layer um, uh, to start the bikes off, you've got like a, you have to power it on and then you tap a fob key onto the bike and unless you've got that unique fob key for that specific bike, um, you're not going to be able to ride a bike. So it's really good couriers and sort of that and the public like it because uh, I guess like any bicycle, e-bikes are nickable as well. So you want to have these added layers of technology that if someone does steal it, they have to um, ring us to actually reactivate it and use it. And we've got a database of serial numbers for all the bikes. It's like a stolen database. So if anyone steals a Volt bike, um, they need to contact us and um, sort of like, um, and we'll try and sort of, I guess, coax them in here and, um, and take the bike off them if it's stolen, which is quite fun. We've done it a few times. Along with unique locking systems, Volt have built in accessories to the frame itself, meaning users can be on their way as soon as possible. Because we know that when people buy an e-bike, they're not just buying a bicycle, they're buying something which is like a transport solution for them. So a lot of people are using this and they don't want to have to worry about everything that sort of comes with it. So they like having the idea of a rack, they like having the idea of the immobiliser, the locking, everything. It sort of really um, gives them added sort of like... I guess, comfort in the product they're buying, which is quite good. All our bikes come with lights built in as well, powered by the main battery, so you don't have to worry about ever putting new batteries in your, in your lights or anything like that. As a new manufacturer, it was key for Volt to work with trusted names like Sony, Suntour and Shimano. As James describes, doing so strengthened not only reliability, but built product trust with users. By sort of working with like uh, sort of the world's leading brands like Shimano, like you say, like, like Tektro, SR Suntour, um, Bafang now on the motors and stuff, by, by sort of working jointly with them to sort of develop um, the sort of technology which will improve the bikes, you, you, you're working with sort of well-known brands that have a lot of trust already. And that trust is just immediately translated and transferred into the purchaser. But when you're actually going for a component, which is actually a motor, um, you know, 
a battery like our batteries all have like Panasonic cells in them you know and, and, and you want to have that because it sort of gives one like lithium ion cells can be unstable and um, and if you get like a cheap imported like lithium ion cell with no brand on it um, well I guess the expression is playing with fire and it's quite literal isn't it that you are playing with fire so um, whereas um, we work with Panasonic and Panasonic have multiple tests they do sort of pin testing and all sorts of stuff where, where they penetrate their cells with you know a effectively like a pin that goes in and, and they test how long it takes for that chemical reaction to kick off and, and they, they prevent cells from going one into the other on, on issues. And so, you know, it's, it's all about sort of, um, I guess, rider experience, but also rider safety and, and, you know, the best product. When it comes to distribution, Vault work alongside around 100 dealers in the UK, but focusing their attention on independent outlets rather than larger suppliers of bikes rather than just shipping out a box and going, here you go, which a number of manufacturers do. We try and support it locally as well by having sort of like test rides available anywhere in the UK, local servicing uh, and that kind of thing, and, and to, keep, to keep Vault sort of with good coverage. We're a family business and most independent, I guess, retailers, shops, um, whatever you want to call them, they're mostly family-owned as well. That's our forte, really, you know, like we like getting on with people we like the fact that you know they, they are passionate about what they're doing you're dealing with a person you're not just dealing with like a credit control team you've got real people sort of sat there trying to make a business work and we really benefit them and they benefit us so we've got a really nice relationship with our dealers we do only want to carry on working with these smaller independents we're not really interested in this in the, in the larger like we've spoken to a number of them actually and we've had a few come into our factory and things and we made a decision sort of earlier on it's not our bag you know we'd rather keep the product good create a healthy atmosphere for our dealers for us for everyone else and maybe not even have that pressure of having um, the, the pressure from these big resale you know sales corporates as well nationwide We've spent enough time in the showroom. Let's give one a test ride. So yeah, so that's towards you and that one. So to go faster, as in to go into like gear race. For Monocle in London, I'm Maylee Evans. Massimilio Tassetto is the third-generation managing director of Italian lighting brand Lotus. Under his leadership, the company, which was founded by his grandfather in 1950, has experienced something of a renaissance, with a rebranding and a widening of its catalogue to accommodate a range of environments and budgets. It's a work that's inspired by a passion for glass and informed by continuous technological research. To find out more about Lotus, I spoke with Massimiliano at the brand's headquarters near Venice. We are not pretending to teach kind of the job of architect and designer. I'm here to make their life easier in designing. So a brilliant idea sometimes stays just an idea because it's very difficult to do it or impossible or too expensive to do it. Because a good product is a balance of design, aesthetics. Wow, I like it. Also, the money, the people, the client of the designer, because at the end of the day, the designer designed by aesthetics and functionality. And from the other end, the couple who hire the designer, they need to decide the, the budget as well. So 
our offering, uh, we uh, try always to be innovative on the product, on the technology, and as well, I give to the designer, to the clients, to create your style, to create your style with our product. So picking up our product and adjusting and putting down the product, installing the product in a certain way, create different combination that fits any environment. So it's not about the style, it's about your style. I guess the other thing I want to ask, you know, we're at the glass blowing this morning. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, and I know you work with other people that develop lights. Can you tell me a little bit about these partnerships that you have and like how you how do you choose somebody to manufacture, whether that's your, your lighting component or, or your glass? Like how are you picking who you work with? Well, we, we are in Venice, of course. Venice is the district of lighting. Many, many of our suppliers are suppliers that born company that create at the same time of my, when my grandfather opened the business, so is relation, work relation and personal relation built over, over, over the years. Sometimes it's not only the, the company can have the idea and the company is the, the manufacturer like us, is the one who put in the face in the market. But to create a good product, a good glass quality product, always has to be with the supplier. I don't believe to the people, they have the company to do everything, because you cannot do, we do manufacturing, as you saw, but we cannot do everything, because we need to have even the freedom to choose the right material at the right time. We don't want to overuse material because just we have the own production. You know what I mean? We need to have, a good balance between the elements that com- compose the product. So the, the relation with the su- why to choose one supplier instead of another, we work with almost all the suppliers around us. One supplier does one product, another one does another product, because it's going to the glass, sometimes it's personal skill. Depends how good you are to do in a specific product, why we call it glass mastery. Mm. Mastery because mastery is done by experience. So it depends from your experience about the kind of tools you have in your glass factory. You are better to do one product. Once you've done some prototypings and you're looking at different glass finishes, how do you choose one? Are you thinking about the sort of light that it's going to create, the way it's going to refract the light? Like, what's the thinking? No, for sure, I am. As I told you, I have a technical background, so the lighting for me is important. No, all the products are designed to, to give a light that can illuminate more for the feeling you get out from this light. For example, if you are talking about flare, one of the latest lamps designed by Patrick Norgay, when he proposed this huge glass, already a big glass like this, as you saw, because you saw with your own eyes, you can understand how difficult it is to create a product like this. I was, by experience, I was already aware that this big piece of glass could have problem of manufacturing, because it's big. And bigger is the glass, more defect you can, you have on the glass. But the defect itself is a proof of craftsmanship because it's not done by a machine, it's done by uh, a people. And along with the, our partner, we, we, we spent a lot of time together to decide which was the tone of color, because the, the color is the most difficult part on the glass, because every time that you do a new recipe to create new glass, the color can be different as well. Together with them, we, we went to a lot of 
color and the final decision we took uh, with Patrick Norge. I mean, can I ask as well, like you, you, you smiled then when the defects are a sign of craftsmanship. Why is, why is craftsmanship important to the work that Lotus is doing? Why isn't everything made, you know, out of, you know, Pyrex or simple, simple glass? Why still have craftsmanship in what you're making? Because the, this is some product require craftsmanship. You want to have, uh, at the same time, other, if you do a composition of one glass is slightly different from another one, it gives you a sense of unique. Otherwise, we are all will be the same. No, so everybody with the same car, everybody with the same color, everybody with the same jacket, everybody with the same everything. So, why I like to do the comparison of fashion, or why one jacket is different from another one? Is one jacket better than another one? No, is how is your body how the jacket fits you better? Mm. This is the reality. So craftsmanship for us is our heritage. My grandfather started this, and sometimes it seems stupid, but sometimes we don't think about craftsmanship because it's so inside the DNA of the company that you are not doing this because it's craftsmanship. Because for us, it's normal. Can you sum up the ethos of Lotus? What does the company stand for? What does Lotus Lighting mean to you? Lotus Lighting, I think what it stands for is Lotus is for you. It's not for us. It's not, Lotus is not creating product for our own ego, as many companies does, in my opinion, is a mistake. We put our product at the service to our customer. I use my product to create your style, to create your environment, not to have my environment. You don't need to to take inspiration from me or from us. I give you the, our product that is designed to make your style, to make your way, to make our product fits perfectly in your style, in your place. Thanks to Massimiliano Tassetto of Lotus there. For more on the company, do pick up a copy of Monocle's November issue, where there's a bright report on the future of lighting. British label Sunspell's Autumn Winter 2022 collection has been inspired by and designed in collaboration with the Margate-based potter Luke Eastop. The artist's elegant and minimal ceramics are made in a varied and muted palette, which has been translated into a collection of T-shirts, jumpers and knitwear for Sunspell. Monocle's Grace Charlton spoke to Sunspell's creative director, David Telfer, and the artist, Luke Eastop, to learn more of their collaboration. David began by describing how his work on colour palettes led him to collaborate with the ceramicist. Every season we, we look to work with an artist or a designer on the colours for the, the colour palette because we've worked on so many colours over 160 years of Sunspell. So it's, it's really interesting to work with someone new each season. And, and Luke, I'd, I'd just been following him on Instagram to be honest. I was really drawn to the shapes of the pots he's making but, but also the colours that he was creating. Um, and one, one of the things that we've tried to do at Sunspell is actually get in touch with the, the artist and, and designer uh, rather than just use them as inspiration but actually understand the thinking behind what they were doing. So actually the more we got in touch with Luke because we liked the earthy palette that he was using, the more we understood that actually the process he was using was also linked into those colours that we were aiming to create. I think art and design and, and clothing has always been interlinked, so whether it's essentials or or high fashion, I think the, the inspiration behind clothes needs to link in with art and design. And I think 
it might sound weird to colour your collection linked with a pot. You're not wearing a pot, but I think it, it just gives you a new kind of perspective on how to work with colour. And, and one of the main things that I really like with Luke's work is the way he photographed it. The brighter shades were smaller pieces of the palette and the, the kind of really dark, nice, muted browns and greens and the ecrus would kind of be the big palette. And I just saw a beautiful wardrobe. For Sunspell's wintry collection, the tonal colours of the mineral oxides and clay of Luke's ceramics made perfect sense. We were looking for earthy colours, so it was the, in terms of the design team, we felt for working with those colours, very wearable, quite commercial, especially within menswear. But as we found out more about the colours, it actually uses minerals, oxides. We've looked at colours through pottery before, but that was through glazes, which is actually a quite a limited, different palette to what uh, Luke is creating, which is much more muted tones and very matte, which we always quite like, and actually quite tactile. So mm. even though the shapes are very minimal and modern, the, there's definitely a craft in the tactile feel of the pottery, which I thought was really, really nice. A mutual appreciation for good materials, be it in fashion or in ceramics, made this collaboration a natural fit. Potter Luke Eastop tells us about his experimental process creating his earthy palette with materials, colorants, and the kiln. They're dictated by the, by what is available, you know, from the earth, which is a beautiful thing about pottery. You can't use any carbon-based or organic inks because of the temperatures involved; they just burn out. Yeah. So your blue will come from cobalt, and green from chrome. So using metals for metal oxides for coloring. Um, and apart from that, for the more muted tones, they are kind of made by the earth. Um, and then I mix them up. I started uh, experimenting with working with the clay itself rather than a glaze over the top by mixing a terracotta and a porcelain, which are meant to be fired at totally different temperatures, the two extremes of the range of firing temperatures in pottery. But I thought if I just do 10% increments from one to the other and then fire them all quite high, I'll see what happens. You know, I was reading lots of books about pottery when I started, and it'll tell you that the 100% terracotta one might kind of melt or bloat, so it's called start to kind of bubble uh, as it gets too hot past its maturation point, uh, and the porcelain will be fine. So I didn't really know what to expect, but actually all of the, all 10 of the pieces came out really, really well, mm. um, and all of them seemed usable, even the kind of 40, 60, just a kind of brown, you know, but it had this quality to it that didn't feel like a secondary process when you know if you're glazing something you just make it in whatever clay you, you like to use and then the decoration comes as a secondary process you put the glaze over the top of that whereas I realized doing it like this I'm making the, I can make the decision about what I want the final piece to be you know what material am I, am I going to use to make this piece and that is the decoration and I can make that decision before I start making it so it's in my mind when I'm on the wheel the kind of final, you know, the final product. With glazes, because they're melt, you know, everything melts, all those ingredients melt together, have much more chance to interact with each other. So if you start kind of having fun and mixing a little bit of that and a little bit of this, and like, well, maybe, you know, again, I was reading a lot of books to tell you, okay, you can get some variegation if you add rutile, for example, which is, um, yeah, one kind of uh, mineral ingredient that you can use in a glaze. So I put some of that in and I put some of this in. I was expecting to get some really interesting kind of variegated greys, like kind of Danish rock pool mm. kind of thing. That's and for next season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I might go back to it because I never cracked it. I did all this work and then it came out of the kiln just 
perfect Dijon mustard. <laughs> just bang on. I was like, why is it even yellow? <laughs> what have I put in there? You know, I had no idea. And yeah, it's just because there's so many, there's much more chance for interaction. Whereas when you're mixing clay with a colorant or mixing different types of clay together, it's much more painterly in a way. You know, I know that that I'm going to get, it'll be usable. It might not be really beautiful. Mm. And, there, there, you know, there is some variation and it can yeah. change. And But generally, it always it's always quite pleasing, I think. Finally, Luke shares with us the surprising design influences and elements that feed into his work, including typography from his youth as a graffiti enthusiast in southeast London. Graffiti led into kind of experimental typography, I'd say. Um, and interestingly, that, I think, is the thing that's had the most influence on my ceramics. So where David saw clothes in those arrangements of the pots mm. with the small kind of accent colours and the larger kind of plain colours... I know that that comes from graffiti. So arranging these pots, the dynamics of having a small one at the beginning and then maybe they get bigger in the middle is the same as you do with your lettering. Yeah. But I didn't realise it at the first when I started doing that with pots. I'd make all these pots, start arranging them in a certain way to photograph them as a graphic image and the kind of the composition, the dynamics of them together. In my head, I kind of knew exactly what to do. And I started posting them, and one of my friends that I used to do graffiti with saw it, and he was like, I've seen that before. The artist Luke Eastop, and before that, Sunspell's creative director, David Telfer. They were speaking to Monocle's Grace Charlton. Finally on today's show, we look towards the stars with Space Perspective, the leading luxury spaceflight experience company, which has recently unveiled the new design of its space travel capsule. Called Spaceship Neptune, it's currently in production at Space Perspective's manufacturing facility near NASA's Kennedy Space Centre. It's a smooth, spherical vessel that will be capable of taking civilians on flights beyond Earth's atmosphere. To find out how we can design for people in such environments, we spoke to a few key members of the Space Perspective team. I think it's something you're sort of born into. I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in space and human space travel. My father uh, was an astronomer and he took telescopes up to the edge of space in these huge balloons. And I've been involved in ballooning and balloons and lighter than air in one way or another ever since. I'm Tabor McCallum. I'm the co-CEO and co-founder of Space Perspective. Spaceship, isn't it? I mean, the end of the day is every like transport designer's dream. Hi there, I'm Dan Winbo. I'm experienced design lead for Space Perspective, and I've just founded my own design studio called Of My Imagination. The real difference between this and what we normally do, I mean, lots of things we normally work in transport design, your aircraft and trains and those kind of things. They've had decades and decades of your design and experience put into them to get them to where they are now. And you have a really strong starting point. What we're doing now is a totally blank sheet of paper. And so I guess it was, you know, a completely different approach to how we would kind of start that. So you're starting from nothing. How do you create something? And obviously, being a space capsule, you know, what we've got is spherical, so it's a circular layout. Again, that's totally different from the normal forms of transport we normally work with. And so that just opened up the whole idea of 
you know, just experimented with absolutely everything. We did kind of card, low fidelity mock-ups for people to actually sit in an experience. And we had a very kind of strong side point idea of obviously being a radial array, you know, looking out towards the windows. That seemed to be the logical approach for what we're doing. But through the process of, you know, mocking up all these different iterations to try and lots of wild and wacky things, we realized quite quickly that maybe that's not the way forwards. And we've moved towards something which is kind of two semicircular arcs internally on the capsule itself. And really what we're trying to do is offer people the flexibility to kind of do different things inside the capsule, not just to be forced to sit in one seat for the whole duration. And that was a really exciting, interesting you know, project, working through all those different layouts and actually having you know, people in seats, giving their feedback, talking together, such a valuable part of the process that. One of our first big questions was, you know, what is the diameter of the sphere? And so a lot of that mock-up work was really understanding uh, you know, how small could we make it still make it work? And so a lot of the back and forth was, you know, the big picture dimension of how big it has to be. And a lot of those layouts really worked to make that come together. And you'd be surprised how big a difference, you know, a couple of inches makes at this point. It's, uh, it's really surprising how, how actually tight it is. Then there's things like window size and window reflectivity and the like. So there's some mechanical size, but we really wanted to give Dan as much freedom as possible within the sort of set constraints that we had physically and sort of let it work from there. The other thing, by the way, you have to have aside from a bar is a lavatory and placing the lavatory was one mean task. We, we, we moved that thing everywhere. <laughs> but it is the greatest view in, of any lab in the world. You know, majority of things we work on in transport design, it's an A to B journey, isn't it? You know, it's all about getting to the end destination as safely, you know, as possible in comfort, obviously. But this is all about the journey itself. The journey is the experience. And that's quite different from everything else I've, you know, worked on typically before. And so therefore, it's all about the view outside the windows, you know, experiencing that. And because it is a six hour journey, you know, it is a fairly long period of time. We want to offer people the opportunity to be able to get up, walk around, do different things inside the capture, not to force somebody to sit in that seat at that window for six hours straight. And that is quite counterintuitive from where you kind of start from. So I guess you know, we had the initial expectations, as most people do, you think of a spaceship, you know, it's often something that's very kind of white, quite stark, quite sterile, really, quite kind of industrial. And we really try to flip that to make it feel much more kind of domestic, make it feel much more kind of familiar. And you'll notice something we put in the interior is plants, obviously quite a striking feature. But again, that was just to make people feel kind of at home, feel at ease throughout that journey. And, you know, with that, obviously, Tabor mentioned then quickly about reflections in the windows, you know, we've got really bright, intense light coming in through the windows. So you don't want really bright, white, intense objects on the inside that are going to reflect back inside. So we obviously want everything to be quite dark, quite muted. And then with the lighting itself, we don't want to see the direct light sources because you don't want the reflections back at the windows. So everything's using very kind of soft wash lighting, really trying to create like a really nice, calming, cozy kind of ambience inside that space. But really, that's quite the opposite from what you see. If you look at like Space Odyssey 2001 and all these things and all the references and Star Wars and all the things, you know, growing up, you often see all these very kind of plastic, hard panelled white interiors that are quite stark, you know, the total opposite of feeling comfortable and feeling, you know, cosseted. So that's really try to kind of flip that on its head and go completely the opposite direction. My thanks to the team at Space Perspective there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. 
Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.